Hello and welcome to the Technicast. This is part two of our special episode around the Techne Congress on Reenchantment, which took place at Kingston University from the 7th to the 11th of January. If you missed part one, we highly recommend you listen to that first, because we follow on from that episode in which Rosalind Holgate Smith and John Mason explored reenchantment through their dance and storytelling practices, respectively. This episode brings you a recording of the conversation that John and Rosalind had at Congress. Answering questions from the Technicasts Felix Klutzen and from the audience, they talked about the role of magic, about attention, about reconnecting with the emotional impressions of place, and about escaping time. We hope you enjoy it. First, I'd like to ask maybe uh, John first and then Rosalind, as it was the order of the podcast, to just introduce themselves and say a little bit about their research and then also how they came up with their uh, recordings for us um, that were went out this morning. So I'll hand over to you, John, please. Thanks very much. Hello, everybody. So, uh, yeah, my name's John Mason and um, I'm doing a technically funded PhD at the University of Brighton. Outside my PhD, before my PhD, I am also a professional storyteller, among other things. And so my PhD connects very directly into that. It's about the connections between storytelling, folklore and landscape and local history as well, um, and how the intersection of them all can benefit a sense of self and community building and things. In my recording, as you, if you've not listened to it, I am very much drawing on my practical experience as a storyteller doing work, which I now know since I started my PhD fits very, very comfortably under the umbrella of reenchantment. Thank you. And uh, Rosalind, please. My name is Rosalind. I'm a dance artist and choreographer, and my practice is very much influenced by somatic training and a dance form called contact improvisation that is based on two bodies that typically move in relationship to touch. And my research that I'm doing at Kingston University is part of my PhD is about touch as an encounter with otherness. And it relates to my work both with human bodies, moving in touch with human bodies, and also in touch with other materials of the environment, um, soil with water. And in this talk, I'm talking specifically about the work and practice that I've developed with trees in the last couple of years. Thank you. To start with, I wanted to ask about this interaction with the landscape and how important place is in what you do, particularly in the sense that a large proportion of people grow up in urban environments where they don't have that same interaction with the landscape and how we go about re-enchanting ourselves with the natural world, including like you say, was in actual raw, raw materials. So how important is place and how do we go about building a relationship with the landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, perhaps the beginning of my podcast gives a little bit of an invitation to be where we are, to arrive where we are now. And this is the, the starting point that I take in my practice when I arrive in the studio or where when I arrive outdoors, even like I invite you to begin in this podcast with where we are here and that this relationship that we have, the immediate fact that we are in relationship, we're breathing and we are physically in touch, perhaps with the seat of our chair 
or or the clothes we are wearing, but bringing awareness to our sensory relationship is like the foundation perhaps for the work that I'm doing and yeah, enlivening a sense of being here. Do you, do you think that a lot of the time we don't have that, that sense of, of being here? Yeah, I feel we, we forget a little bit that we are here or in relationship in a way that's felt. And so the sensorial kind of work that I do sometimes to like just draw my attention to my feet or to, to like touch my own skin is like helping to enliven the sense that, that I've got the skin and that there's a, there's a feeling of connection. The work is also very much about building and expanding that, that sense of relationship. And I think that's harder in these urban environments. At the moment, I live in a flat in Berlin and I feel quite trapped sometimes. And so the, the natural world enlightens for me a sense of wonder again, a wonder, like a wider wonder, because the feeling of interrelationships, just hearing the sound of the, the wind moving for the trees is more apparent in a, in a lively sense. And maybe I, I forget that living in my flat. <laughs> I think I definitely do. And uh, John, um, I think some of your work is trying to bring that to people who live in these urban environments where they can it, it is that, right? yeah it's it's certainly um i guess my phd work certainly starts from the assumption that we ought to be able to feel that sense of connection in in a, in urban environments or or in any environment to be honest that, that i i'm really interested in the way that just it's just as an inherent part of human psychology we do kind of wallpaper our surroundings with our own internal narratives our own stories about who we are where we are why it's all like that even though we don't again we don't really realize we're doing it necessarily and so i am really interested in the idea that 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 can be built on and that the urban environment can be made to seem more enchanted than they necessarily are i think there's an awful lot of historiographical work that can be done on why we have this assumption that enchanted equals green space. Uh, not that I'm saying it doesn't by any means, certainly not knocking that, but I think it's important to sort of look all around at that cultural narrative, that story, which is what it is, and look at how it evolved through, for example, 19th century reactions against industrialization and, and um, people wanting to go back to what they felt would have been a simpler time and all of the stuff to do with class and, and um, the, the imposition of a narrative on other people that you can unpick from that because obviously for for the people actually for for the horny-handed sons of toil and the like it was it was never that much of an idyll really but but then on the other hand when you look at people like John Clare the, the peasant poet then he's often held up quite rightly as an example of, of a horny-handed son of toil who felt very very painfully the loss of connection to the rural landscape through all the social and economic changes of the 19th century. So yeah, uh, it, it, it's multi-layered and you can cut it in lots of different ways. But um, when you said in the in your introduction, uh, in, in your question rather, Felix, about urban spaces being somewhere where you can't necessarily feel that sense of enchantment, what I found myself thinking of was the, the comics writer Alan Moore, who some of you might have heard of. He wrote the comic that Watchmen is based on. He wrote V for Vendetta, all sorts of other things. 
and he's lived his whole life in Northampton. And I saw him saying on a um, TV interview, gosh, 15 years or so ago, that in a way, all of his works, um, whether they're about angels and devils or Jack the Ripper or superheroes or whatever, they're all about Northampton, really. And, and he gets so much inspiration just from walking the streets. And he was talking about trying to suck the story out from the cracks in the pavement almost and he's clearly got a sense of enchantment in where he is and and maybe I should go and interview him I don't know sure that would be amazing so it almost strikes me that that you can both almost use what can be seen in the natural landscape to re-enchant people with not only that space but also the spaces where they are anyway be it a flat or yeah the street wherever it is it's about just re-engaging with everything is that is that fair i think i feel that working out in nature like i have a draw towards the big outdoors that allows for me like a sense of perhaps permission in my own wildness to to be expressed mm-hmm. and i feel that you know to to dance on the street or in the city or to um there's a lot more so societal judgment hanging around <laughs> i talk a little bit about this i think in the last podcast poem in which there's I reference some bystanders kind of on um, looking at me from from the sides or from distance and so I think like the codes or behavioral codes within this urban environment you know are laid out in 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 forms architectural forms that signal ways of moving and um, traveling through space and occupying space so there's a freedom at which like working and moving outdoors gives me. I mean, maybe there are also restrictions depending, you know, also on the nature of what I'm standing upon, whether it be slate or soil, or if I'm in a watery environment, this all shapes what I do and how I move. Of course, but I think the expansiveness or the sense of like freedom is greater. And then is a starting point for, to come back to, 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 to take this freedom and come back into um, giving myself permission to, to move and to uh, express myself within perhaps more urban spaces. Yeah, how does it feel when, you, like you say, you feel trapped sometimes and you escape to these environments and then you have to come back? Is it, is it difficult to come back? Does the sense of freedom allow you to be more free in, in these spaces, even though there are constraints? or? I think there's a, a kind of sometimes like just having to grapple with what you've got, you know, um, we can fight all our time or like a lot with these like um, negative thought patterns or that that I can't dance because it's cold or that there's like, um, you know, there's just no trees around or people that I want to dance with. So actually, whatever the negative, the, the, the kind of uh, impossibility that you construct, there's a like there's also the possibility to engage with it or play with it and maybe accept what it's giving you in its limitation. Yeah, for sure. It's funny you say about limits. Another limit that I wanted to ask you both about was that of time, because I feel like a lot of the time we are almost told to think that we don't have enough time for things that aren't real and are advancing every day. And I felt like in both your ideas, there is some sort of timeless element, whether it be like in, in the first part of your podcast, Rosalind, about the just the, the years just past, it, it was just part of existence. 
but then also John through you saying that often long processes are compressed and contextualized within a single character or something. And so these stories become sort of timeless. You know, the Pied Piper could be any time really. How important is it to escape time when you're when you're telling a story and because that's kind of a constructive constraint that's that's put upon us? Oh, everything that I was going to say, you have completely diverted by what you said at the end about escaping time. Really interesting you said that because um, there's a, I guess he was an anthropologist, maybe I hope I'm getting that right. Um, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Mircea Eliade. I think he was um, a Romanian-born academic who wrote in France and then in the States in the mid-20th century. And he has written some very influential stuff about how myths work as communicators of, of cultural messages via symbols. And a lot of what he believed was that in because of the time that he was writing, he used the phrase primitive society in primitive, for want of a better word, um, society, there was a very definite subliminal, I guess, attempt to escape from the uncomfortable fact of progressive time. And that one of the ways in which mythical stories operated in societies in the past, and he is arguing in uh, other societies these days that maybe operate on a level more similar to how Europe might have been pre-Enlightenment, that uh, a the myth they're telling carry timeless messages which i can I'll, I'll talk a bit more about in a moment because that's also important but but that these messages were always r related um by reiterating whatever their creation myth was and that every action that had any real sort of social significance whether it was in terms of uh, recognizing the calendar or birth, death, marriages, um, or how you go out and acquire your food or whatever, was seen as being a reiteration of a single cosmic act um, back in their in their creation mythology. And in fact, that that point in the the er time was actually time became simultaneous in the moment of the telling of the story and the reenaction of the event and a completely different frame of mind to the linear idea of time that we have now and um you know a, a lot of people have, have written a lot more about that i first came across it through alan garner who's one of my favorite writers and huge influence on my work but when i went back to read eliade's work then it was clear that he felt it was actually a fear reaction that led communities to do that by not wanting to face up to the existential dread of the fact that time moves on and things change and we lose stuff. So I, I can see that is a, a big human driver, certainly in, in so many parts of life. But just so as to sum up and not go on too long, I, I think one of the things that a lot of storytellers and writers like Alan Garner and others say a lot about why old folk tales, old legends still work is because actually they carry a timeless quality to them. They carry a myth which still applies um, at any point in, in human history because it, it relates to such a deep level of human experience. And I, I touched briefly in, in the podcast on Alan Garner's views that stories operate on the level of symbol. Stories are most successful when they represent something which is a, is a profound human truth. Now, one thing I think is interesting is which I guess is sort of intersecting that view with a, a, um, a recognition of linear time is that the myths that resonate at, uh, to us now, and we can we can say, oh, yes, uh, let's all talk about 
King Arthur say? Because there are you know, beautiful things in that that we feel a certain truth um, from some versions of the King Arthur story. But did they actually, were they the same things that resonated for people 500 years ago? Were, or did different bits resonate? Or will they still resonate in 100 years time? And of all people, J.R.R. Tolkien, actually, in one of his published essays on fairy stories, he makes a point which I think is just absolutely crucial. When you take any, any, any telling of a story, and I think this holds true for folk music and all sorts of traditional forms that are passed down, it actually just, all it tells you is what mattered to people at the point that that iteration was, was told. Because stories, he describes them as being like a framework where each generation can poke out the bits that they don't see as being necessary anymore. And, and so the bits that are retained are the ones that are carrying a meaning and still resonating through time. And actually other bits will be added in all the time to reflect um, those same processes of change. And I do that as a storyteller all the time, whether I'm thinking about it or not. At the end of this month, I'm, I'm telling the, um, the legends behind the ring cycle. And I know why I think those stories are so powerful and really matter on a really deep human level. But I know also damn well that there are significant bits of the medieval manuscripts that it's all based on that I'm totally choosing to miss out because I don't fit with the schema that I want to, to convey. I feel, yeah, I want to say a couple of things in two directions. So one, one is about this notion of dropping out of time and it's in relationship with dancing with trees. So my experience with working with the trees is there's a massive slowing down and just to, to be with or to sit with, to tune in with this other being that is not moving, that does not have kind of the possibilities that I have to stretch and walk around. And I mean, in, in many ways, our kind of construct of time is a fairly new thing that keeps order in place and allows us to meet here today. But that, yeah, like is a really like a dropping, a dropping out of time, dropping below my sense of time to find a sense of listening or solidarity that's like able to maybe find some place of communication. So I think in the beginning, at least in the work that I was doing moving with trees was was really about slowing down to speeds that I hadn't really knew were possible in myself and I think in the same way I do something similar in dancing with other people and in contact improvisation that um, it's about dropping the velocity at which I'm like holding myself to attune or align with a way of communicating that we can both meet at a speed that we can both um yeah a frequency also in ourselves because the, the 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 trees can't speed up to your pace so to speak so you, you have to go to them yeah and that doesn't mean that i don't have to, i can't doesn't mean that i stop myself from also then possibly later moving very quickly because i have these mobile possibilities but actually the sense of togetherness or sense of like witnessing of this other that we're also in this together and the non-human energies or <laughs> forces that I inhabit through being in the presence of this tree, this being that's, yeah, I'm allowing that to, to sit with that. It's, it's uh, in, in both senses, I think, it's like a, a widening of a perspective. So the, the storyteller who tries to tell something that, that lasts, that, that transcends kind of that particular moment, or like yourself, you're, you're transcending that particular 
perspective of human time that we have. It's, um, yeah, you say dropping below or stepping outside. It's a really interesting thing that you can, you can yeah, shift that, that thought, uh, thought pattern, so to speak. Yeah, Karen Baraji talks quite a lot about like the void in relationship to quantum physics. And I feel there also is a, a dropping um, in touch. There's a relationship that's physical and there's information that, that is exchanged or perceived, taken in through the reception of our skin. And so how that interacts in my being and what kind of other histories I carry, memories, that it maybe collides with and it like mingles has some some effect on what's what comes out or how I feel, the emotions, the images that might I might experience. And I wonder about this this void a bit like it was if it was my the inside of my body, but also just in the sense of being together with a tree, that there is like an, an infinity of so the possibilities of being with many layers of textures of numbness or feeling of all of that being and non-being to to kind of have a freedom of choice to choose what sensations in the end in my movement I follow and go towards but say yes to what do I what do I choose in in almost this stepping back so I'm thinking also a bit about the void or this infinite timelessness as a as a great gap of yeah of all of the sadness and longing and 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 also greater compassion in the end yeah uh, john do you find that you can give a sense of that to an audience if you're in a landscape setting where something took place or you're telling a historical story compared to if it's in a classroom for example is there a sense of that that can only be found in in that environment i'd imagine that i think the answer is yes ultimately i it's still uh, i don't think that's a reason to avoid doing it elsewhere because a lot of what you can do is about the the moods and the, the pictures that you're painting for people um in the telling and not wanting to be too critical or dry about it but but actually you know even in a, a particular place then a lot of what you are doing is is just bringing your own assumptions and, and and own personal imagination your own fantasies to it your own interpretation is what it amounts to and then the listener the pictures in their head and what they come from it is is always going to be their interpretation of that again but that said i personally feel that when i'm actually standing in the place that it happened then it becomes more special and i i am hoping that the audiences will feel that it is more real because they can actually sort of relate to the the grass and the sky and the, the trees and the earth in front of them. And from the feedback I've had and people keep on saying that, yeah, it, it really does make that difference. It, and it makes them look at where they are differently, which is which is ultimately the, the, the big hope of it all. So, Rosalind, how do you go about, like John said, you bring your your assumptions and your all these other things? Do you have a process where you go about trying to strip those away when you go to make these connections or is it about trying to incorporate everything and just bringing everything you have to that connection? Yeah, I think there's both. There's both a kind of like I'm quite a drawer and like I write as well, like in response to moving in different contexts and like, so there's a kind of trawling out of like, 
forms of expression to also kind of understand perhaps you know my process and then you know the artistic things that I actually want to share you know what do I want to share and that can then be part of what's sculpted into like a choreographic work or a performance or or something just you know what do I want to show maybe it's already something that I've trawled out but yeah so I think there's there's both and I really yeah resonate also in what in what John was saying about the the passion or the force of sharing I mean you're in your case John storytelling in context in which it has resonance for you or has has like developed you know your imagination has developed um there and it's not always possible to do that but sadly yeah I think there's also kind of how do you how do I also re-establish those those relationships or build new ones or adapt adapt um yeah so yeah I and I think for, for both of you although I'm sure I'm sure they there'll be similarity but differences what, what is your if there is ever one particular cultural process you have a you you go and have this experience and and you're where do, how do you go from just being with the landscape to producing some sort of artistic output whatever that might be whether it's dancing or writing or drawing like you said where how do you interpret it and then produce something i feel like um in some ways uh, the the honest answer is that i don't often start with the landscape which as even as i'm thinking it and saying it, i feel like i'm letting myself and all of us down i'm very sorry but um the, the way that the, the process usually for me is that i will find a story that just really gets me most often in a book because that's where I'll, uh, although it's, it is an oral form an oral tradition actually m- most of the ways you're going to encounter it these days are in published collections and then i will seek the place out because sometimes because it is kind of a technical thing in a way, um, but but also a, a, an emotional interest that I think, OK, I'm going to tell this story. It will be better if I've actually stood there and, and understood the place. And that's when I, I just love the way that, Rosalind, you can articulate that sense of of communing with the space around you really that's really what i'm trying to do when i visit these places a lot of the time though it does also have a sense of a, of a bit of a pilgrimage really like there's a a set of stories that are just my biggest deepest first love in storytelling um called the mabinogion which is um a welsh medieval welsh set of um stories and by complete coincidence my favorite one of those stories is also the one with the the most detailed set of geographical references in it, the actual real places and says that it says, and this happened here, and this happened here, and they went there. And all of those places, for the most part, are within an hour or two's drive at the very most from where my uncle and aunt live in North Wales, um, where I've visited them just about every year of my life. And um, so, yeah, being able to go and visit those places was really like yeah, I was there was no anal- analysis going on in that at all for me it was just it was an emotional pilgrimage really and here on recording I wish to thank Fiona Collins a storyteller from North Wales who took me to several of them for the first time herself and uh, where do you find your stories you, you say often it is now published works how do you 
Where do you yeah. find new ones? Well, uh, any it, it is very magpie-like, to be honest, actually. There's, there's not that much in the way of process, really. Whenever I'm in a second-hand shop or anything like that, then I'll just browse and go, ooh, ooh, that, and, and pick things out. Uh, one thing that uh, there is, uh, the History Press um, are doing a series of books that have been for a number of years now, which goes around the UK county by county or broadly county in in some cases and and so you can get berkshire folktales sussex folktales snowdonia folktales and so on and so forth and so i've i've started collecting those as i know a lot of other people have and i go for the ones that have some sort of personal connection really and then you can get all sorts of other books of gosh when i first got into all this as a teenager then it was the mid 90s and it was quite a thing for there to be books of celtic myths Celtic legends and and you can still can find all sorts of wonderful anthologies so it's it's really just a case of browsing them and 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 in each book there'll be at least one story that really just hits you in the gut and and makes you think that that's it I've got to go and tell somebody else that story and these days as a professional storyteller I do get to actually hear stories the proper way as we we like to think of it you know it feels does feel very authentic when you're actually at an event and somebody else tells a story and you think that's amazing I really want to tell that story too and you can go and have a conversation about it uh yeah Rosalind how about you I, I imagine it's slightly different your firstly how do you choose where to dance and then yeah what is your creative process um, thereafter well, okay, I'll just talk in relationship to the outdoors rather than with people, I think, because that normally takes place in a studio. But um, yeah, walking, walking is a, a, a big possibility for, it opens the possibility for just orientation um, being pulled to, and being pulled to where I'd like to move in a space. And that might be near the coast or with the trees. Um, and often I find myself going back to, to places where I feel comfortable. I feel like a lot of the preliminary part of my practice is, is just for me. It's really, for me and my spirit to be in relationship with all these other, uh, with the environment and the, the nature of that environment. And so, yeah, I find myself sometimes going back to one place um, just to go back perhaps to some of the early work with the trees. Like I would find myself sometimes standing on branches. And so like I witnessed things that I would come back to, motifs would emerge in my movement, things that re would recur, a feeling of certain kind of quality of time or a physical gesture. And I found myself with the trees, like really staying in one spot. So I would not travel around. I would really stay in one spot. That felt also meaningful somehow in relationship to the period of early COVID where, you know, people haven't got very much possibilities to move. So I started to kind of think about, oh, you know, that motif, but also, you know, what's, what's its relationship to a wider context. And so I stayed with it. So there's kind of motifs that are then further grounded into into apparition or having some substance. I mean, other things arise as in the sense of really rooting in in order to move from a log or a branch that was there. I had to also feel through my structure into the connective tissue of, of, of the tree and looking for directions of force in which I could then, you know, lever myself out of and change my angles or position. So these became further motifs that I was able to later communicate in developing work with other dancers. 
and sometimes those motif of, motifs appear in imagery, you know, they were drawings or um, it can be a very like abstract idea, it gives me an abstract idea to then create a piece. And in a piece, it's for me at the moment, I'm much more interested in, I mean, I come from a visual arts background in quite abstract durational performance that's actually in effect doing the work, like it's actually entering through ritual practice, a kind of meditation, a kind of consolidating of, oh, you know, this is um, this is a moment where we are just going to be in relationship with the trees and this place. So the motifs are exercises in a way, or they become can become um, forms of practice and scores for improvisation that might, you know, be uplifted and taken somewhere else. And so some of the, I recently performed um, a trio of a work that I call now Trees, in which it's very simple work. We, we, we were three performers and I've done this with nine performers and seven performers previously. And so it's kind of simplifying still yet the work, which is really a, a kind of rising out of the ground and rooting and continually just yeah following certain scores and emotions emerge, but it's grounded in the physical task that I give to myself and the other performers. Yeah, amazing. So you, you, you talked a little about um, uh, inspiration. Could you say a little bit about, um, we were talking, you know, the, the, the feeling of magic or enchantment. Does that come into, you, you talk about emotions, is that part of your experience that you find? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's coming up. It's come, those emotions are arising, and sometimes there's like rage and force, and sometimes there's sadness. And I I don't like in a in my choreographic approach. I don't want to put emotions on to other people or on to myself. Even the work is actually about witnessing those things as they come mm. up, observing them from uh, a distance, perhaps back into the void of like where there's a greater sense of possibility, but also a need for choice making and responsibility in what I surge towards and yeah, how I want to be with that emotion. So yeah, there's in intrinsic to my improvisational approach is this kind of sense of inner witness, uh, witnessing my being with, and also the wider environment. Know, what's happening how are the other dancers moving around me you know um what's safe yeah. yeah thank you yeah i'd like to come back to responsibility in a moment but but first john if you could say something again you, you spoke a little bit about the, the balance between magic and and realism or truth in, yes. in your recording how do you try to bring out that magic while still balancing it yeah, I must admit, this is something that I find yeah, I'm still kind of very much thinking through for myself as part of my PhD work, really. Um, and so I suppose I, I guess there's a distinction between magic as a metaphor, for, uh, as a as a way of describing that sense of of, in, of enjoyment and, and, and wonder, really, um, and, and the emotional experience of, of the place we are. And, you know, whether or not you believe in magic as a, as an actual process, which is something that in some ways I, I wish I'd delved more into in, in the podcast, but did what I thought was important in the, in the time. But 
I've, I met, mentioned an article by um, Helen Cornish, who's an anthropologist who studies modern day witchcraft. I, I, just to sort of explain where I'm coming from, because I realise this might all sound um, a little bit odd to a lot of people, and I completely understand why. Um, I'm totally agnostic on, on these questions. I, I really am. But I've spent a lot of time with people who do believe that there are, you know, magical forces out there in the world. And I think it's important that we approach that as we would any other religious belief and it does overlap quite significantly with the the question of re-enchantment really about you know it, trying to engage with the world on a a more intuitive uh, more immediately experiential level and so yeah I, have i tried to tap into that with my storytelling uh, no not not so much i think partly because to be quite frank, I'm a little scared, really. And again, maybe it is about responsibility as well. It's because I, I'm open-minded to the idea that there is potentially something there and I don't want to go playing with it if I don't really know what I'm doing. And I certainly don't want to inflict that on an audience. So approaching the other side of it about magic as a as a as a, a word to use for um, how people do, you know, for that sense of wonder, really, that is something which I, I'm, yeah, I, 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 I really throw myself into, and I really want to, and I guess it's like contrast with what Rosalind was describing with with your practice, Rosalind. Is for me, I suppose it does tend to be a little bit, a bit more planned. I feel a lot of the time like I'd imagine stand-ups might feel, where you're aware of the mood in the room that you're getting from the audience and your own emotional mood but also keeping that very balanced with a, an, an analysis of what's going on and thinking all oh, right they like that bit so I'll say the next bit slightly differently or oh I'm losing them I better change how I'm going to deliver the next line that sort of thing and so that that sense of balance which I guess is kind of a very similar thing to the balance I'm talking about in the podcast is there in my planning as well. I'm very aware of my own emotions about the story and I'm thinking, how do I evoke these same feelings? How do I um, get the audience to to share this feeling with me? It's not so much about trying to manipulate them, but it's just about wanting to wanting them to, 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 to see this thing which I'm finding so thrilling. So that's where a lot of the choices of words and pacing and things come from. But then one of the things I love about storytelling is that it, because it's oral, then it uh, so much changes on the on the night, so to speak, when, when you're doing the telling, depending on what's going on in the room, depending on what I myself am feeling on that occasion, what what whatever baggage or, or opinions or whatever I'm bringing into the room. And some of my favourite moments in the way that the stories have come out have been completely out of nowhere on the spur of the moment when it when I really feel like I I, I do it just something's happened and I've let go of that intellectual planning of what I'm doing laying the tracks in front of the train and and suddenly like just everything lines up um, and I can see through it the thing to say which is which takes me by surprise as much as it might take the audience by surprise in terms of the the emotional place that it leads the story into and when that happens then I, oh, I I'm having the time of my life and I try really hard to remember what it was so I can then repeat it in the lab so to speak and so the so the story gets better every time because of that yeah amazing we have a, a lovely question in the chat which I, I will get to in just one second but directly linked to that experiential thing. 
Rosalind, could you say a little bit about why touch is important? Because that, of course, is very, very experiential. Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry, I just got a bit excited about what you were saying, John, and like maybe think, I'm going to maybe layer this a little bit back with this subject of emotion as well. Please. Yeah, I think touch kind of establishes a grounding. It's always like, um, yes, that you're in touch, that um, there's some material relationship that gives me a kind of bringing always back to the reality in which I am now, the present time, place. And emotions can run wild. And it's actually, you know, maybe I said, you know, I don't let my work be governed by this emotions or I don't use the emotions as a starting point. It's, it's a, you know, it might rise through, through me, different emotions. But emotions are, you know, entangled also with our biochemistry and you know, fueled by adrenaline or testosterone or um, whatever um, other hormones in our bodies. So there is a choice making as to how I engage with those emotions. And that, just to think of the magic, like oh, what's my experience of magic perhaps in, in my movement practice, it has been those moments in which I have felt and, and also seen different characters that, that I feel like a, a kind of archetypes perhaps that come to come to my um, imagination. There's um, a picture of me like dancing in a logging site. And I really had images in this place of, uh, of black women like that were you know holding their children and yeah really didn't didn't have the resources to to feed their children. So the, the, my imagination went to places that fuel me with a sense of relationship to women of the present or also of the past to the relationships that are uh, ancestral that yeah makes this much bigger than 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 myself um so this is for me how yeah I, I sense some kind of magic and and sometimes there's a fear that comes with that I remember like in the black forest some characters kind of emerging in my qualities of expression of like a gremlin or a goblin and having like you know my own judgments and rejection of these qualities that were emerging but yeah there, there's there's a choice you know a choice of what what do I create with and how do I use my body in ways that's like saying no to or yes to cultivate um, Can I say a bit more on um, please. Um, just um, linking into that? Uh, thank you, Rosa. That, that that was that that really yeah. I I I could see what you mean, and and I I find it so interesting, really, that there. Um, I think a lot of the stuff that Alan Garner has said, and others, and and that I can kind of relate to from my own personal experiences in a similar way to what you said, Rosalind, is that however you want to interpret that experience of a place whether you do see it as as ghosts or or or, or something paranormal or whatever clearly as human beings we can relate to places that way and often artistic expression certainly stories and and i i don't want to be presumptuous because i'm i'm not a practitioner of what you are rosalind but but that that sort of creative engagement with experience and with our surroundings and with our own emotions can be a really good way of mediating how we connect to whatever is going on somewhere whether it is like uh, in the case of stories as I said in the podcast it can be a way of turning it into a metaphor that speaks on a symbolic level 
to the emotional experience that was there. We don't know what was going on, but if we imagine this, then we can actually start to engage with it almost in a sort of like a little safe space. You create a little, through the story, you create a, a little flight simulator, a little bubble where you can contemplate the experience within terms that you've set, where you feel secure and, and like you understand what's going on and you're in control. And I guess that's a huge part of what a lot of these stories about places which say there's a ghost there, there are fairies there, there's a spirit in that well, whatever, I think have been in the past and still are now a means of making ourselves feel in control. And this, this I think, is fundamental. It's certainly fundamental to my PhD, uh, but I think it, it's really important. And, and I've got here because I knew that I might want to bring this up, a, a really good quote by Terry Pratchett um, on this subject, where, again, I, I, I spoke earlier about that existential dread of time passing. And, and you know, if you, if you really strip away any kind of whimsy, then life itself is flipping terrifying on an existential level. The, the, the lack of certainty, the lack of control, the fact that we are you know, subject to so much beyond our control and I since my master's I've been really fascinated by the way that we create stories in our brains to to establish control for ourselves not even on a you know thinking about magical things but just like I'm a punk because uh, there is the man and there's me fighting him and so I know where I am you know that sort of thing um Terry Pratchett says we spray our fantasies on the landscape like a dog sprays urine it turns it into ours once we've invented our gods and demons, we can propitiate or exercise them. Once we've put fairies in the sinister solitary thorn tree, we can decide where we stand in relation to it. We can hang ribbons on it, see visions under it, or bulldoze it up and call ourselves free of superstition. And I think, you know, all of these stories or whatever, and, and Rosalind, you made me think of it so much with what you described about dancing in that place and seeing those people. These, these creative expressions and experiences i think are ways of making sense of that emotional impression that place can give us and i think re-enchantment obviously is all about remembering that there is that emotional impression that a place can give it's not just all about the the cerebral um understanding of things and clearly as human beings you know, you, you, you all of the stuff we've talked about and the fact that that has been the predominant human experience up until 500 years ago or whatever in all of history shows just how much use there is, how, how much benefit there is to actually trying to re-engage with places on that level instead of just cerebrally. Thank you. John, you spoke beautifully about a lot of things that influence you on the podcast. Um, as a big Springsteen fan, I, I, I enjoyed that a lot. But we've got a question from Stephanie who would like to know, Rosalind, if there's any particular um, cultural influences you have that you might like to share with us about what's kind of people who have inspired you or, or, or anything like that. I think my dad, my dad's inspired me a lot. <laughs> my dad's not alive anymore. My dad died quite a long time ago. Yeah, I think he, he really had a very strong relationship with the outdoors and nature and... Yeah, I'm grateful for that gift, you know, that he shared, showed much of his joy of being outdoors and also quietude of like being in, in the big, in big open spaces. 
so yeah i i feel some yeah deep appreciation um for that oh uh, yeah i know uh and is there anybody um are there any sort of writings in particular or, or writers who have informed the way that you go about things or, or your relationship with nature nature and space as I said, I'm very influenced by uh, the dance form contact improvisation um, that was developed 50 years ago in New York. Um, it's a dance form based on touch. So I'm you know, very inspired by the people that have dedicated themselves to this movement practice. Um, people like Steve Paxton or Nancy Stark-Smith. Yeah, that have, have developed their, also a language around the work and what we've been doing. Yeah, so I feel very inspired by those people and yeah, other people that have also very much researched movement um, in in relationship to our evolutionary development, like Andrea Olson, um, Karen McCose, as well as there's a, it's not so ancestral, but there's some links that I've felt through that, through the School of Body Mind Centering. And I'm inspired also by, um, by other dance choreographers and visual artists, um, like Meg Stewart, for example, her work's not so much to do with nature, but more about the social social performance relationships. Um, yeah, I think nature probably is important to all of us. But is there a particular thing about nature that is personally important to you, mm. or a particular part of nature, for example? You know, you know, or, or you know, why why trees per se? For example. Well, I think trees are. You know, for me in a way, so there's many similarities between us and trees. So the whole, my whole practice has brought me that into awareness, our verticality, our presence in the world um, and our interrelatedness, um, also our strong central um, axis, how we're built. I feel there's that, but there's also see feeling the nature in us that we, we are also in and of and part of nature. So I feel that that's also living in a flat in Berlin. <laughs> also uh, treating as much as I appreciate the tree myself, like and our bodies as sacred and um, respecting the feelings and the emotions that are part of my experience. Yeah, and the, the, the also the very immediate, yeah, the very immediate that is my flesh, as is that of my my close companions or relatives friends lovers um family um okay i have i have uh, one more question i'd like to ask but i'm perfectly happy um to pass it over to the group if there's any anything else anyone would like to ask um before we finish there's a hand I, that's gone up oh cool yeah. please go for it Jeez. hi there's i mean hi there hi everybody thank you so much for the presentation absolutely fabulous i live in Enfield lock and uh, there's some woodland nearby. So developing a relationship with nature and trees has been very, very important. It's not always a, a comfortable relationship. It's one that has resistance, a lot of resistance, uh, but the rewards are, are really um, very much worth the effort and time to engage with. So um, John might have said this earlier, John, when you were introducing um, the author who said inspired you around characters that try to escape from characters that try to escape from progressive time mm. and I missed the name 
of the author you mentioned that wasn't an English author. So I'd really appreciate you just putting that in the chat if you can, and I'll look it up later. But I'm wondering whether living in a pandemic and uh, during the pandemic, how we all had different experiences of uh, our experience of life, quality of life, the pace of time, as students looking for extensions of time to complete our PhDs. I'm wondering, traditionally, character usually drives time in storytelling. And I'm wondering whether, linked to what you're saying about existentialist time, whether living with a pandemic now puts us as storytellers in a position where we think about how characters may drive time differently, especially because this pandemic has showed that people have experienced death differently during the pandemic? That's a fascinating question. Wow. Um, there's so much there. I'm not sure I can, I know where to start to give it, give an easy answer. I think what you've said is it sounds exactly right. Yes. Um, we have experienced time incredibly differently. And so, yeah, why shouldn't that? affect the way we see characters driving the chronology of events in a story. Um, oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head of lots of interesting things you could do with that. I mean, one thing that I suppose really stands out for me in terms of how time changed during the pandemic was a, a sense of stillness, really. Uh, Felix, you said yourself uh, at the beginning about escaping from time and, and, and about just the, the, the constant frenetic rate of activity that we're all used to these days. And that in itself is something which I suppose people following Weber's definition of disenchantment would say is, is symptomatic of the, the, the problems that we have in, in post-industrial society and the efforts to re-enchant can, can hopefully combat that by, by re-engaging us with just that sense of stillness. And in terms of storytelling, I guess it would be really interesting to think of stories where, where it isn't about fast-paced changing events, it is just about somebody sat in a room. I'm working on something at the moment, actually, which I think Thank you, Judah. I, I think I think my work on it would would really benefit from thinking about it that way. Where it, it's it's a story about um, for, very briefly, Merlin the wizard wasn't always anything to do with King Arthur. The earliest occurrences of that character in medieval literature, he's um, completely separate, and he is a a warrior called Merlin who was at a battle in the south of Scotland and was traumatised by the experience of being at this battle and fled into the woods and was known as mad. And there are a few instances of poems and things that are supposed to have been written by him while he was living isolated in the woods. And it's that sense of isolation that I'm trying to convey and, and, and that sense of crossing the boundary from civilised society into this wild state, but also re reconnecting with nature that way. And I think that sense of stillness is something that I'm 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 trying to to connect with in 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 the way I'm working on that story. So um, I hope that's enough of an answer for you, Judah. I, mean, I think you, you've probably got more, much better, more complete thoughts on that than I have, it's, even by asking the question. It's been a, it's been a great session. Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. I'm afraid uh, we're we're almost out of time. Um, so I just want to say thank you very much to both of you. That was amazing, and. We didn't get the responsibility, but it's nice that we focused on the enchantment stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, that was it from the Congress, and somehow we found ourselves left wanting more. 
Well, at least I did. Couldn't you just listen to Rosalind and John all day? But sadly, that was all we had time for. If you've been inspired by the theme of re-enchantment, do get in touch with us at technicaster at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and welcome responses in podcast form. Or perhaps you'd like to present your own work on the theme. Rosalind Holgate-Smith is a dancer and PhD candidate at the Kingston School of Art. John Mason is a storyteller and PhD candidate at the University of Brighton. You can find out more about their work following the links in the show notes. The conversation was chaired by Felix Klutzen, who is also part of the Technicast team, along with Polly Hember and myself, Julien Klein. Thanks to Rosalind and John for their generous thoughts and ideas and their wonderfully poetic work. Thanks to Techne for their ongoing support of this podcast. And on behalf of the whole team, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and consider sharing it with a friend or two. We'll see you next time. <laughs>